three chapter twelve of bonaventure a prose pastoral of acadian louisiana this librivox recording is in the public domain bonaventure a prose pastoral of acadian louisiana by george w cable part three chapter twelve the beausoleils and st pierre's you think of going to new orleans in the spring certainly the spring is the time to go when you find yourself there go some day for luncheon if they haven't moved it there is talk of that go to the christian women's exchange already mentioned in the rue bourbon french quarter you step immediately from the sidewalk into the former drawing-room of a house built early in the century as a fashionable residence that at least is its aspect notice for instance in the back parlor crowded now like the front one with eating-tables a really interesting old wooden mantelpiece of course this is not the way persons used to go in old times they entered by the porte cochere and open carriageway upon which these drawing-rooms still open by several glass doors on your right step out there you find a veranda crowded with neat white-clothed tables before some late alterations there was a great trellis full of green sunshine and broken breezes entangled among vines of trumpet-creeper and the scuppernong grape here you will be waited on by small blue calico-robed damsels of methodist unsophistication and presbyterian propriety to excellent refreshment only if you know your soul's true interest eschew their fresh bread and insist on having yesterday's however that is a matter of taste there and no matter at all here all i need to add is that there are good apartments overhead to be rented to women too good for this world and that in the latter end of april eighteen eighty four zosephine and marguerite beausoleil here made their home the tavern was sold the old life was left far behind they had done that dreadful thing that everybody deprecates and everybody likes to do left the country and come to live in the city and zosephine was well pleased a man who had tried and failed to be a merchant in the city he and his wife took the tavern so zosephine had not reduced the rural population had not sinned against statistics besides she had the good conscience of having fled from mr tarbox put you and i apart as it were and yet without being so hid but a suitor's proper persistency could find her just now he was far away prosecuting the commercial interests of claude's one or two inventions but he was having great success he wrote once or twice but got no reply and hoped to be back within a month when marguerite after her mother's receipt of each of these letters thought she saw a cloud on her brow zosephine explained with a revival of that old look of sweet self-command which the daughter so loved to see that they contained matters of business not at all to be called troubles but the little mother did not show the letters she could not marguerite did not even know their writer had changed his business as to claude his name was never mentioned 
Each supposed the other was ignorant that he was in the city, and because he was never mentioned, each one knew the other was thinking of him. Ah, Claude, what are you thinking of? Has not your new partner in business told you they are here? No, not a word of it. That'll keep till I get back, Mr. Tarbox had said to himself, and such shrewdness was probably not so ungenerous after all. "'If you want a thing done well, do it yourself,' he said one evening to a man who could not make out what he was driving at. And later Mr. Tarbox added to himself, "'The man that flies the kite must hold the thread.' And so he kept his counsel. But that does not explain, for we remember that Claude already knew that Marguerite was in the city, at least had her own mother's word for it. Here weeks had passed.' New Orleans is not so large. Its active center is very small. Even by accident on the street, Canal Street especially, he should have seen her time and again. And he did not, at any rate not to know it. She really kept very busy indoors, and in other doors so did he. More than that, there was his father. When the two first came to the city, Saint-Pierre endured the town for a week, but it was martyrdom doing it. Claude saw this. Mr. Tarbox was with him the latter part of the week. He saw it. He gave his suggestive mind to it for one night. The next day Saint-Pierre and he wandered off in streetcars and on foot, and by the time the sun went down again a new provision had been made. At about ninety minutes' jaunt from the city's centre, up the river and on its farther shore, near where the old company canal runs from a lock in the river bank, back through the swamps and into the Baratarian lakes, Saint-Pierre had bought with his lifetime savings a neat house and fair-size orangery. No fields? None. You see, bombay, by and by, Claude get dose new machine in. He go to engineering again, and him and you, Tarbox, be taking some contract for Bill Levy, or break up old steamboat, or raise something what been sunk, or something that way, and then he certain want somebody to boss gang of fellows, and then he say, Papa, I want you, and then I say how I got fifty arpent, forty acres, rice in field, and then he say, how I going do without you? And then there be fifty arpent rice gone. No, no fields. Better. Here with the vast wet forest at his back, the river at his feet, the canal, the key to all Barataria, La Fourche, and Terbonne, full of Acadian fishermen, hunters, timber-cutters, moss-gatherers, and the like, the great city in sight from yonder neighbor's balustraded housetop, and Claude there to rally to his side, or he to Claude's, at a moment's warning. He would be an operator, think of that, not of the telegraph, an operator in the wild products of the swamp, the prairie tremblante, the lakes, and the small harvests of the points and bayou margins, moss, saw-logs, venison, wild duck, fish, crabs, shrimp, melons, garlic, oranges, perique tobacco. Knowledge is power. He knew wood, water, and sky by heart, spoke two languages, could read and write, 
and understood the ways and tastes of two or three odd sorts of lowly humankind. Self-command is dominion. I do not say the bottle went never to his lips, but it never was lifted high. And now to the blessed maxim gotten from Bonaventure he added one given him by Tarbox, in union is strength. Not mere union of hands alone, but of councils. There were Claude and Tarbox and he. For instance, at Mr. Tarbox's suggestion, Claude brought to his father from the city every evening, now the Picayune and now the Times Democrat. From European and national news he modestly turned aside. Whether he read the book notices I do not know. I hope not. But when he had served supper, he was a capital camp cook, and he and Claude had eaten, and their pipes were lighted, you should have seen him scanning the latest quotations and debating the fluctuations of the moss market, the shrimp market, and the garlic market. Thus Claude was rarely in the city save in the busy hours of the day. Much oftener than otherwise he saw the crimson sunsets and the cool purple sunrises as he and St. Pierre pulled in the father's skiff diagonally to or fro across the Mississippi between their cottage and the sleepy outposts of city street-cars just under the levee at the edge of that green oak-dotted plain where a certain man as gentle shy and unworldly as our engineer friend thought claude to be was raising the vast buildings of the next year's universal exposition but all this explains only why claude did not to his knowledge see marguerite by accident yet by intention why not by intention first there was his fear of sinning against his father's love that alone might have failed to hold him back but second there was his helplessness love made tarbox if anything were needed to make him grave it made claude a coward and third there was that helpless terror of society in general of which we have heard his friend talk i have seen a strong horse sink trembling to the earth at the beating of an empty drum Claude looked with amazed despair at a man's ability to overtake a pretty girl acquaintance in Canal Street and walk and talk with her. He often asked himself how he had ever been a moment at his ease those November evenings in the tavern's back parlor at Vermilionville. It was because he had a task there. Sociality was not the business of the hour. And now I have something else to confess about Claude, something mortifying in the extreme, for you see the poverty of all these explanations. Their very multitude makes them weak. Many fires cannot quench love. What was the real matter? I will tell. Claude's love was a deep sentiment. He had never allowed it to assert itself as a passion. The most he would allow it to be was a yearning. It was scarcely personal. While he was with Marguerite in the inn, his diffidence alone was enough to hide from him the impression she was making on his heart. In all their intercourse he had scarcely twice looked her full in the face. Afterwards she had simply become in memory the exponent of an ideal. He found himself often now asking himself 
Why are my eyes always looking for her? Should I actually know her were I to see her on this sidewalk or in this street car? And while still asking himself these silent questions, what does he do one day but fall, to all intents and purposes at least, fall in love, pell-mell, up to the eyebrows, with another girl? Do you remember Uncle Remus's story of Br'er Rabbit with a bucket of honey inverted on him? It was the same way with Claude. He want des only bedauble wid it, he was des kivered. It happened thus. An artist friend whose studio was in Carondelet Street, just off of Canal, had rented to him for a workroom a little loft above the studio. It had one window looking out over roofs and chimney-pots upon the western sky, and another down into the studio itself. It is right to say friend, although there was no acquaintanceship until it grew out of this arrangement. The artist, a single man, was much Claude's senior, but Claude's taste for design, love of work, and the artist's grave sincerity, simplicity, and cordiality of character, he was a Spaniard with a Spaniard's perfect courtesy, made a mutual regard, which only a common diffidence prevented from running into comradeship. One Saturday afternoon, Claude, thirsting for outdoor air, left his airie for a short turn in Canal Street, the matinee audiences were just out, and the wide, balcony-shaded sidewalks were crowded with young faces and bright attires. Claude was crossing the neutral ground toward Bourbon Street, when he saw coming out of Bourbon Street a young man, who might be a Creole, and two young girls in light and what seemed to him extremely beautiful dresses, especially that of the farther one, who, as the three turned with buoyant step into Canal Street to their left, showed for an instant the profile of her face, and then only her back. Claude's heart beat consciously, and he hurried to lessen the distance between them. He had seen no more than the profile, but for the moment in which he saw it, it seemed to be none other than the face of Marguerite. End of Part 3 Chapter 12